Well, thank you for being here tonight. And uh, thanks for choosing to tune in rather than tune out, which can be uh, very attractive in times like these. A lot of energy moving in the culture, a lot of emotions stirred up for many, many people. As um, awareness of racism and police brutality is amplified, not something new, but it's more amplified and there's just more uh, looking at that and attending to that than we've seen in, in how many years. And perhaps there's more people willing to see, called to see, forced to see, through technology more able to see. So these are, these are interesting times. A great uh, danger and misunderstanding of Zen practice is that we calm ourselves down in order to not feel and see the world around us. That somebody is Zen when they have this little tranquility capsule and they're not moved by the world or not touched. They don't, they don't feel deeply. That's a, gra a grave uh, misunderstanding of practice. Equanimity is not indifference. Equanimity is not indifference. Equanimity, in a way, is the platform to be able and willing to see. Equanimity, the ground for empathy or the ground for doing whatever our work is around racism, uh, white supremacy, internalized prejudice. Another misunderstanding related to this topic is that we're going to, our meditation practice alone is sufficient to address these issues as practitioners. And somehow if we just got everybody to meditate racism and sexism and everything would just go away, which is the silliest of ideas. Um, our increasing awareness can, I want to emphasize, can help us see, dissolve, and show up differently. And I'll talk about that uh, in a minute. But it, it, I believe it should be said that it's naive to think that we get peaceful and our work is complete. Or that if we just clarify our own biases, that that is a sufficient response to systemic racism. In a way, this is the shadow of Buddhism itself, which has not historically been terribly active in the realm of society and political matters directly. But it's a new world. So just to emphasize, if systemic racism is something that we're not familiar with or we're not educated about, the education is waiting for us. It's all out there. And so the various ways of, of disrupting systemic racism, speaking out to interrupt ignorance, within conversations, through protests, supporting organizations that uplift people of color, voting, petitions, all of it is valuable. And this work is part of our karma, practicing in this country, and specifically white folks, our ability to practice and the oppression of people of color and black folks is all intertwined. And so this is not something that we're, we can extricate our, our ability to do Zen practice from, but it's something we have to really look very directly at.
So the, the focus of my talk is specifically about what Zen meditation can bring to this personal work with illuminating and dissolving ignorance. And, and, and ignorance in all its forms, disregard for humanity, distorted perceptions, preconceptions, embedded attitudes, Does it ring true for you, the Buddhist teaching, that the mind is the forerunner of all things? The mind is the forerunner of all things. Basically, that all action flows from state of mind, from perception, from attitude, from belief. Does it ring true from you that actions flow from your thoughts and feelings? I know there's a, there's a cyclical nature to it. But can you observe that in your life? Does it ring true to you that violent actions flow from violent thoughts or violent perceptions? There's a wonderful Dharma teaching of some samskaras, samskaras. And essentially, samskaras are impressions that are stored in the unconscious, to use Western terms. They're stored, they accumulate in the unconscious for every sentient being, for every human being. And these impressions activate situationally. They're, they are latent. So think about how many images portraying people of color negatively you have received or have been impressed in your life by. Think of the TV shows you've watched, commercials, movies. Just consider the, the accumulated impressions of 30, 40, 50 years, 60, 70 years. Think about racist or white supremacist notions you may have received from your family, your friends, workplace, things that were said. Think about when you were a child, what you heard. This teaching of, of samskaras is that nothing, nothing doesn't land. It all lands. And we can have impressions that counteract these diluted impressions, but nonetheless, it all lands. The mind, the mind is, is really... Uh, perfectly impressionable. Perfectly impressionable. There's no, without, without deep training, there is no way for the mind to not be impressioned. That's part of what it means to be interconnected. So it is my, my belief that it's almost inevitable, at least for Gen X folks and older, that we have minds impressed with racist notions or patterns of indifference towards racism. Now, the unconscious is unconscious until it's not. Does that, is, that, is that a statement even worth saying? I don't know. For some reason, I feel compelled to say that the unconscious is unconscious until it's not unconscious. 
from the perspective of Buddhism and other traditions, what is now unconscious can be made conscious. The un, what is unconscious is a limitation of awareness. It has yet to penetrate. Mindfulness has yet to permeate. permeate. The light has yet to illuminate these impressions if they're not already illuminated. And so as practitioners who are developing more and more awareness and mindfulness of the mind, that's part of the shift in meditation I was inviting us into in that second, second session was a particular practice like that, that illuminates the mind. We're gradually allowing what was unconscious to be conscious. This is part of why some people, when they start intensive practice, they just feel like they're getting worse. They feel like meditation is causing them to be, to be more angry and more ignorant and more deluded when that's not what's going on. It's just that what was unconscious is, is becoming conscious. It's a difficult, difficult phase uh, to go through and even more difficult phase to face when we're talking about uh, racist conditioning. So trying to bury our minds in a capsule of tranquility will not be liberating for anybody. And so there are, there are times in practice where a teacher may emphasize what's called calm abiding. And I was trying to, to emphasize that in the first section, which is a skillful non-involvement with arising thoughts. That you, you let whatever the object is, let's say in this case the breath, be so center stage that tranquility really fills the mind and you're just not, you really are not aware very sensitively of what's going on in the mind. You're basically disregarding it. Now that has its, its place and it has its allure because it works. You can do that. But like any method, first of all, in Buddhism, all the various methods work together as uh, interdependently. And if we fixate just on these kind of methods, then medicine becomes poison. We're developing, we're developing different skills. And essentially, insight cannot develop unless we develop awareness of the mind. The mind is the forerunner of all things. The mind is the place that we will illuminate and clarify delusion. So it's not enough just to sweep it aside. We, we train to be able to see it more clearly. So specifically, for Buddhist practice, we're training our awareness with an eye towards the anger, greed, and ignorance that bubbles up in its various forms, particularly as thoughts and feelings. I don't want to divide thought and feeling so much. It's, it's you know, sometimes you can tease them apart, but really it's a co-arising. If we say a practice is just about letting go of thought, then we might make the mistake of thinking that the body doesn't think. The contractions we feel in our bodies are thoughts. A, a ribbon of anxiety is a thought. So let's, let's think of thoughts as, as a body-mind event that has different elements. It has a word or image component and it has a sensation component. So what do, we, what do we do about the arising anger, greed, and ignorance? 
I want to share steps I found in my practice with this. In a sense, they all flow into each other so quickly, this breaking it down is, is maybe helpful, but it's hard to do in our moment-to-moment experience. It's really one, one gesture of awareness that I want to try to uh, tease apart. So the three steps are catching, not denying, and noting as deluded. Catching, not denying, and noting as deluded. And I want to explain those. So catching is our practice of vivid mindfulness, expanding, expanding the bandwidth. What was previously unconscious now rises up within consciousness. Now, thoughts are happening and beliefs are operating whether we're conscious of them or not. And they have an effect on our perception and our feeling, on our actions, our attitudes. They're happening whether they are conscious or not. Body thoughts, mind thoughts. So vivid mindfulness is about alertness catching. A better, better term might be alert to what's going on in the mind. Can you see how, how this is different than just trying to sweep aside your, your busy mind and, and go into a calm state? Now, in terms of racial prejudice, an example might be seeing or feeling a fear thought or an aggression thought or a pity thought at the sight of a person with brown skin, that you are aware of that, you catch that, you really note that doesn't just slip under the radar. We're catching the assumption, the preconception, the, the closure, perhaps even the posturing. Catching, catching. All I'm talking about here is actually bringing awareness to the happening of this. Happens in thought form and image form, happens in contraction in the body, feeling, waves of anxiety, whatever it is. So catching, vivid, vivid mindfulness. And of course, this skill is is beneficial for self, beneficial for other. It's all around beneficial because we more and more see just how much thoughts are coloring perception and just how much they're they're really operating and and vibrating under the surface. The uh, thoughts, in a way, to me, are like the smoke from a fire. And the fire is the beliefs, the, the fixed beliefs that we have. And those go, those go very deep. But we start with catching the smoke. Thoughts as emblems, in this case, of racist conditioning. So catching. The next step is not denying. Not denying. It's, it sounds so simple, but it's really not so easy. Because we can rationalize, we can ignore, we can screen out, we can tune out whatever doesn't fit with our self-concept. Now, many folks would very much like to believe they are good Buddhists and have no racist conditioning. 
or they would like to believe that they're all loving people and compassionate or whatever it is. We have an identity as a spiritual practitioner and then whatever doesn't meet that identity, we're less likely to want to see. You really don't want to look at that. What challenges that is uncomfortable. I came to get peaceful, not uncomfortable. What is this about? That kind of attitude. So nothing is so wily as the happening we call ego. The longer you practice, the more you um, realize that. Nothing is so wily as the ego. It's, it's actually, in a way, it's like a great, it's a great mystery. The Buddha called it Mara, personification of it, that, that delusion lives in us and is, is a particular kind of negative intelligence. It functions to sustain its own territory. So not, not denying If we deny the existence of prejudices in us, or we just stop at noticing the thoughts, then, then we, we diminish. The work, the work stops. There has to be a non-denial that this conditioning is part of my mind stream, part of my behavior. So for white folks, we can be quite reactive and respond with all manner of defensiveness when we are asked to look at racist conditioning, to look at the, the privilege we receive. And that, that defensiveness and that discomfort of looking at it can, can just shut us down, whether that's in an uh, investigation over time or in this moment-by-moment -moment awareness I'm talking about. One of the... the the wilinesses of the ego is we knee-jerkingly bring up the hardship of our families, times we've been discriminated against. And we miss the point. We miss the point. It's not about that. It's about looking at this issue, this privilege, this particular pervasive form of conditioning that white folks have the primary responsibility to address. So not denying the presence of racist conditioning is not taking on a new identity as a racist. Now, this could be, this could be controversial, and I'm willing to have folks dialogue with me about this, but Dharma is never about taking on a new identity. Not denying the presence of racist conditioning in our mind stream does not mean that you are then, okay, I'm a racist. It's acknowledgement of conditioning. It's not disowning it. It's not, it's, it's taking responsibility for that conditioning. So in real time, when we have reflexive denial of the going on of thought and feeling, we preclude deep, deeper awareness. And our practice is like sweeping dust under a rug. And then we can't become whole. We can't become real in our practice if we don't really acknowledge.
we face perhaps embarrassment about the reality of particular body, mind, thoughts that we have. We, we, we have to be present with whatever comes up as far as shame or guilt and, and work through that when we start to really illuminate and not deny, uh, illuminate racist conditioning. So not, not denying. Now, one other place this shows up for people is just in working with emotion in general. It's hard to work with emotion when you're not willing to acknowledge that you experience it. For self-definition is that I'm not an angry person. Forget the ability to actually work directly with anger. It's not, it ain't going to happen because we have to be in the place of, of non-denial. So after the not, the not, I'm saying after, it's not quite right. But I feel like I don't know how else to talk about it. After not denying, we have what I'm calling noting as diluted. This is one of the things that, that folks rightly criticize about secular mindfulness movement, is mindfulness, as the Buddha taught it, is specifically designed, it's a training of the mind to see delusion. It's not just to be aware so you can enjoy your granola more. It's specifically designed to illuminate delusion. So there's always an eye on greed, anger, and ignorance. I'm not saying that you can't be aware or that's not wonderful outside of this context, but it's not, it's not Buddhist mindfulness if it's not looking at those things. Now, a teaching of the Buddha that may, may be controversial is that when our eye is unclouded, when our heart is unclouded, thoughts and feelings of hatred, indifference, and grasping do not animate us. When our eye is unclouded, thoughts of hatred, indifference, and grasping do not animate us, do not influence our behavior, whether, whether subtle or overt. Uh, there are teachings that teachers are asked, what is, the, what is the evidence of someone who is a Buddha, who is awakened? And the answer is the absence of hatred, indifference, and grasping. So this is controversial, for example, because teachers have different views about anger and its place and expression in our practice. This is nuanced. But can we consider that if we saw our life or other lives with authentic, unclouded eyes, we would see those lives without hatred, grasping, or indifference? Could Derek Chauvin have done what he did to George Floyd with an unclouded eye? Could a mind that was not conditioned towards racism, was not conditioned with hatred, indifference, could such an action have flowed from that mind? 
And can I bring into the mix, could we hate him if our eye was unclouded? If our eye was unclouded, what would our attitude be to someone who's in such a state that could do such an act? Someone who's so disconnected from the depth of their heart that they could be so indifferent. So all of this is so, is so nuanced. And we have our way of working through our feelings. We have our traumas. The main point is that if a thought or feeling closes us down in mind, heart, or body, it's probably an emblem of a partial view. Now, for me, it feels true, and I'm willing to have this replaced by a more accurate perception that when I have a negative judgment about somebody, it's almost always clouded. It doesn't mean I don't see character uh, mishaps. It doesn't mean I don't see unskillful actions. But if I have a negative or hateful or separated perception for somebody, that's a clue to me that I'm not seeing the whole picture. This is not condoning. This is not excusing. Can we have confidence that a thought that causes us to close down to another human being is worth examining or maybe emblematic of deeper-seated delusion? So noting a thought, feeling, perception as deluded, whether in real time as it arises or in soul-searching about our attitudes, for folks who are, who are really doing their work looking into racist conditioning, in real time, that's a very fast action. Mental action, it's a fast categorizing of the thought as confused or assumptive. What I'm saying is that th this is just something that when you bring an eye to it, you just, it, just, you just, it just happens. It happens almost by itself. We potentiate our wisdom that knows what delusion is. This is, in a way, a meaning of Buddha nature. We know what delusion is. There is something that can flow through us that is clear about what is clouded and what is not. And so when that's activated, which is mindfulness, that, that mind says deluded thought deluded thought. There's this, there's this putting it into that category. We, we know it for what it is. This phrase, seeing things as they are, that we hear so often in the Dharma, we see it for what it is. What we do then is we're taking a recourse to not knowing. We see a thought as assumptive, or confused, or making a, a we're, we're, we're seeing through a prejudiced lens, we take a recourse to not knowing, which is another part of our training. You can see how it's all interdependent. We bring the ability to rest in the space that is free from this conditioning. 
we, 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 we train in our Zen practice and what I call dissolving to zero, returning the mind to its, its, its innocence, its native clarity. In a way, it's timeless. As soon as we're in time, we're in the realm of conditioning. But when we rest in timeless wakefulness, that is not conditioned. So in that noting as diluted, it's like we are, we are wiping the dust from our lens that we may see accurately, as accurately as possible for, for a limited human being. So this is, this all I've been talking about tonight is an important part of Zen practice but I just have to say again, it's inadequate in itself for dissolving our internalized prejudices and undoing systemic racism. And I feel one edge that white Portlanders can face is actually never having relationships with people of color because of the demographic of the city. We can exist in a bubble where we don't actually have to see this or feel this viscerally in ourselves. It's kind of a sad and lamentable reality. So uh, thank you, thank you for, for listening. Um, and in just a moment here, I wanna invite any questions or, or feedback. It is, I think, it is a naive and mistaken view that Dharma practitioners should be colorblind. And that's, that's something that, that we can all work to communicate to other practitioners. We have to acknowledge our racialized lives. That's part of being awake. Having equal respect and love for all beings means considering and hearing and educating ourselves about how the world is experienced for folks other than ourselves. In a way, we all exist in the, in the sphere of our own awareness, and there has to be a real effort to let in some other perceptions. So Zen practice is never about hiding out in some idea of oneness, some idea of we're, we're, we're all the same, namaste, I don't have to look at this stuff, leave it, at, leave it outside the zendo. It's not quite right, in my, in my opinion. 